Good afternoon and welcome to your American Heritage, baby. My name is Ed Bondarenka. My pronouns are we and the people, and I am not your normal fluffy insurrectionist. And producing the show and the guy that answers your calls and lets me know when time is up is the Swiss Army Knife of Radio, Derek Stone. Derek hosts Stone Cold Sports Truth Sundays at noon 30, right after my friend Sean Todd hosts the Intersection at noon, which is... Not your normal fluffy Christian show. So you should listen to both. Not to mention the whole Saturday lineup of Avalanche's Roundtable at 9 a.m., Trigger Talk at 11 a.m., and Moment of Clarity right before this show at 1 p.m. And, of course, there's Dave Janda on Saturday, on Sundays also. And if you missed any, go to the podcast page at whamradio.com to catch up or share with your friends. And boost the signal. Your American Heritage is on Spotify, Apple, or Google Podcasts, and you can subscribe. It's the least you can do. It's day 759 of the coup, the theft of the American government by enemies, both foreign and mostly domestic. We have a government hostile to we the people that will not defend our borders from an invasion, but will defend Ukraine's. That will not support the people of East Palestine and the surrounding area, but will transport and pay for the housing of the invading swarm over our border. Do you know why the Biden administration is not coming down like a ton of bricks on Norfolk Southern? It's owned by his pals at Vanguard and BlackRock. I was curious in Google to see who owned it. Think it can't happen near you? We had a derailment of a Norfolk Southern train on on Thursday, about five miles from where I'm sitting. Fortunately, there are no spills of the several train cars off the tracks. Okay, Matthew 21, 21. Jesus answered and said to them, Assuredly, I say to you, if you have faith and do not doubt, you will not only do what was done to the fig tree, but also, if you say to this mountain, be removed and be cast into the sea, it will be done. Well, I pray now that the despicable administration that is doing this to us will wither like the fig tree Jesus was referencing. And that the establishment mountain supporting it will be thrown into the sea. Now, if you were under attack, would you defend yourself? We are under attack daily. These people want to take away your rights, your privileges, and your heritage. And they want your children, too. And they'll do anything to separate your children from you and their heritage. So Psalm 144 says, Blessed be the Lord my rock, who trains my hands for war and my fingers for battle. Please clasp your hands and your fingers together and let's pray. Let's go to war. Father, please protect our nation and our state from these people. Please deliver us from these, these this administration and this regime and, and the whole movement that's attacking your people and this nation. Please reveal their intent to our neighbors and alert our fellow citizens to the dangers we find ourselves in. And please lead and guide the American people in the days to come. Please give us righteous representatives in government. And please restore goodness and morality to our nation and our state. Amen. Now, Matthew 18, 6. We're stuck in Matthew, huh? But whosoever shall offend one of these little ones which believe in me, it were better for him that a millstone were hanged about his neck and that he were drowned in the depth of of the sea. If you have Disney Plus in your house, you are aiding and abetting the destruction of yourself and your country and your children. My son recently asked what I thought of the Daily Wire subscription service as a substitute for Disney. 
I'm not sure about that one, but my grandkids got a healthy dose of Veggie Tales. This is a clip from a recent Disney production for kids. This country was built on slavery, which means slaves built this country. Tilled this land from sea to sea to sea. First it was rice, tobacco, sugar cane. Then Whitney did his thing and cotton became king. And we were it so... Enough, there's more, that's enough. Starts out with a lie, continues on a despicable lie that your kids and your grandkids get subjected to by Disney Plus. And they'll think it must be true, it was on TV. And if you saw that cartoon, the faces on these kids, the anger and the, the it's, 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 it's demonic. And this is who gave it to us. This is a Disney exec, Latoya Ravenel, okay? Our leadership over there has been so welcoming to like, my like not at all secret gay agenda and so like i i feel like i felt like it was i mean like maybe it was that way in the past but i guess like something must have happened in the last like like they're turning it around they're going hard and then all that like momentum that i felt like that sense of i don't have to be afraid to like let's have these two characters kiss let's in the background like i was just Wherever I could, just basically adding queerness to, like, the, if you see anything queer in the show, I'm proud of But, like, I, I just was like, no one would stop me and no one was trying to stop me. In case you missed that, if you saw anything queer, she's responsible. They're they're begging for it. They're, they're presenting it to our kids wherever they can in their um, productions. And so our guest today is Kimberly Ells. Kimberly is a researcher on family policy and has spoken at the UN and around the country on international threats to children and the family. She's a graduate of Brigham Young University. She's married and the father of five children. So she knows a thing or two about family. And Kimberly wrote a book called The Invincible Family, Why the Global Campaign to Crush Motherhood and Fatherhood Can't Win. And it's in paperback just this week. So that was two years ago that book came out, but now it's in paperback. When a book goes through hardcover and comes out in paperback, you know it's, it's doing well. She also had an article published in the Daily Wire, the World Bank wants you to surrender your children to a global childcare regime. And it speaks to the dangers we face from the regime. Hi, Kimberly. Oh my goodness, I can't even hear you on the phone. Oh no. Eric, okay, try that again, Kimberly. <laughs> Hi, thank you for having me. <laughs> oh, thanks for being had. Wow, that scared me. First, we couldn't get your audio on Skype, and then it looked like the phone. Wow, but we're doing well. It's, it's good to see you. And thanks for joining us on the, on the show, and thanks for doing what you've been doing. And I'd like you to first tell our audience something about yourself, and then, and I'm curious, how did you get to the UN? Well, I'm, I've spent most of my adult life as a mom, and about 10 years ago, I... Uh, I had an experience, I found something that kind of thrust me into the public sphere. And what it was, was I found a document published by International Planned Parenthood Federation. And it was a document um, outlining sexual rights for youth, for children. And at first I thought it might be a joke, a parody, because it seemed quite ridiculous. But uh, I came to realize that it was it was real. And um, I decided that day that I was going to fight this because as a mom, you know, that's not acceptable, that the children of the world are going to be taught that, that they have sexual rights, and that uh, and what they mean by that, basically, is that um, children have inherent right to sexual activity and sexual pleasure, as well as the right to access sexual materials and services. And so as I got looking into this, 
um, by the grace of God, I quite quickly came in line with some other people who had been had known about this agenda and had been fighting the children's sexual rights agenda globally for for some years. And so um, that kind of catapulted me, to, much to my surprise, to, to the United Nations, where then I saw for myself this agenda, this children's sexual rights agenda, which is a very anti-family agenda, um, hard at work at the global level at the United Nations. Wow. Uh, it's Yeah, yeah, it's it's... It's demonic. This is not Pizzagate. This is not a, a, a QAnon conspiracy theory. This is at a high level in in global, uh, if you want to say global administration or global politics, a group of people that want to take your kids away. Now, you've got this article that's, that's very well written, uh, titled, The World Bank Wants You to Surrender Your Children to a Global Child Care Regime. Now, I'm I don't know that you're saying that they, and I didn't get this in the article, that they want you to, they want to set up the UN child care agency, but certainly they want our children in child care that they influence so that moms can go to work. If, if it not first, they don't just have an abortion so that they don't become moms so they can work and promote a healthy GDP. Is, is that right? Yes, so this philosophy goes back to, and I address this in the book, this goes back to the writings of Marx and Engels, uh, the early founders of modern socialism. They basically, one of their main tenets was that uh, parental, that, that women needed to be liberated from parental work, that everyone should be li- liberated from their work as parents so that they could fill what they call socially productive roles. So if you'll notice, that frames child raising as a socially unproductive Role, and I would argue that it's in fact the most socially productive role. And so, this idea of that caring for children and raising humanity is somehow a lesser or unimportant or unnecessary job that can be farmed out to anyone—that's that's a core of the socialist philosophy. And so, you can imagine my surprise and dismay when just last month the Biden administration rolled out what they called the U.S. strategy on global women's economic security. Now, everyone is in favor for women's economic of economic security for women and and for all people. But again, what they're doing here is framing the the raising of children as an unproductive way to spend your life. And (laughs) so what what then I discovered that as I looked into it a little bit is that they said that they were working towards women's full and equitable participation in the global economy. That's just a different way of saying what Frederick Engels said, that the care and education of children needs to be handed over to the state so that everyone can contribute to the GDP. And then it goes on, this U.S. new U.S. strategy goes on to say that what they have done is they have partnered with the World Bank. And the World Bank has just rolled out a new initiative called Invest in Child Care. I found that fascinating. What is the World Bank doing rolling out a, a child care initiative? So I looked a little bit further. And basically what the plan is, and by the way, the World Bank is part of the umbrella of the United Nations system. And um, I addressed why that's problematic at great length in the book. But for this, for this particular topic, what the World Bank has planned to do is to collect data showing that uh, child care is better than home care for children, which, by the way, the, the data has not shown that up to this point, by and large. And then um, it frames it as a government responsibility to make 
childcare available to basically anyone, anyone who, who, who wants it. And um, I argue that that's not a government responsibility. I understand that many people may need that and even want that, but is that a government responsibility to provide it for all people? And so then the World Bank, their strategy is to collect data and then um, incentivize countries, pay countries, for rolling out these child care policies. Oh, well, right in the Constitution, it speaks about promoting the general welfare. So there you go, right right off the bat. It's, it's the government's job to watch over the kids, promote the general welfare, as if that's what it really meant. You know, as you were describing this to me, I was thinking in terms of, let's see, what is, this sounds like the socializing, as, as you mentioned, Marx and Engels, of child care. And I mean, uh, socialism has worked so well in the marketplace, you know. I'm reminded of, and we've mentioned it on this show quite a few times, about the uh, the Mayflower Charter. And when the pilgrims came over, they uh, they first set up a socialist form of government. And then as they were slowly starving, they realized uh, each person is not interested in providing for the whole community. He's interested in himself. And once they privatized the, this farmland and doled it out, everybody had an interest in it. And it prospered. Well, I'm just thinking as you're talking, a you know a, a nursery full. It's bad enough in the classrooms, but let's just say in a, a nursery full of babies or children, and state-paid providers of care for these. There's no way. I mean, there are certainly so, certain mothers that are are not fit to be mothers. But maybe they'd get the role, maybe they'd do it for pay under this system. But the fact of the matter is mothers have this natural desire to see their children prosper. Whereas, basically, I'm, I'm thinking of Nurse Ratchet or somebody like that in these nurseries. And, you know, either being domineering or or there's no oversight. It's, it's, it's all a cold operation and they're doing it for the bucks. There's no self-interest in it. Right, and the, the example you raised of the early pilgrims is, is perfect because the idea behind that was, well, we'll all take care of the gardens. Well, we'll all do it, and that's how it'll work out best. Well, it worked out terrible, and this is the same philosophy undergirding this latest push for universal child care. It's like, we'll all take care of the children. Sorry, that's not going to work as well as mothers and fathers who actually love their children. It's not going to be the same. Is it going to be terrible for every child? Maybe not. But if that becomes the global default that we are expecting from birth, basically, onward, that the state will take responsibility for our child. And, and by the way, the World Bank says that they will be in charge of providing uh, quality standards to make sure that every child uh, has quality care. I wonder what those standards will be. I'm imagining from my experience at the United Nations, as I, and as I document in the book, that they will be teaching little kids collectivism and socialist principles. And where will that lead the world? So I think this is one of the biggest, in my opinion, one of the biggest um, wars Kidnapping. against motherhood that I have seen recently. Yes, exactly. And I'm reminded of a famous phrase as if it were a, a folklore parable. Uh, it takes a village to raise a child. You know, I mean, where have I heard that before? That, that's, <laughs> that's Yeah, Hillary Clinton and, and every other socialist talking head. And no, no, it takes a family to raise a child. That's what it takes. 
And then the, the, the community can, of course, be supportive, but it takes a family. That's why God created man and woman. They're, they were designed to work in harmony, um, and it works best for children if they do. And one of the main tenets of my book talks about how women hold a position, if not the greatest position in, in the world. And that's a message that women aren't often told. They're told that motherhood is drudgery, it's slavery, oh, it's so sad. No, motherhood, while it is difficult, as a mom of five kids, I understand this, it is where the pedal hits the metal. It's where one child at a time, we establish the beliefs of the whole world. And mothers largely are in charge of that, in cooperation, of course, with fathers. And that is a position of power. And that's a position that we need to not relinquish. Like, you know, Lenin said, give me four years to teach the children, and the seed I have sown will never be uprooted. He's talking about the first four years of a child's life. And that four years is what this Biden administration initiative is aiming at. And I say, don't give up that four years to anyone, not anyone, especially not the socialist state. They did this experiment in the USSR in the 20s and 30s, did they not? I'm not sure I saw it in your book. Uh, maybe it's maybe because I, I had to read fast. Sorry about that. But I know I've read it before that uh, in the 20s and 30s, when they tried this social experiment, the, the, the kids were, uh, I mean, it, it turned out bad. And then they promoted free sex. Uh, there were no social morals at all. And, and everything, nobody knew what was going on. It just went to hell in a handbasket. Are you familiar with that? Did you want to speak yes, to that? I, I do address that to some degree uh, in the book. And, and uh, that's, that's where it leads. How many times do we have to see that the socialist collectivist uh, system does not work? And now we're going to try to enact it globally with our youngest children. That, that just well, it's never, of, it's never been done right. Well, and here's the interesting thing. I talk about this in the book. There's an early, well, in the 1970s, there was a feminist. Uh, her last name was Firestone. And she was actually quite brilliant. And she pointed out that um, she said the reason why socialist societies and communes and things have not worked in the past is because we have not been able to sever the special connection between mother and child. And guess what? She's right. So her solution is we need to sever the, the connect, special connection between mother and her child. My solution is the opposite. I say then that, we, that is, if that's the thing that holds socialism at bay and keeps a, private, a, orient, a privately oriented society intact, then the relation, special relationship between mother and child, which is inherent at birth and unbreakable, that is the thing that we must defend and honor really at all costs. Yeah, exactly. And it begs the question, who owns the child? Because we've seen it uh, uh, surface recently, particularly in school situations, that uh, the, the state schools believe that they own your children. It used to be that they were uh, in local parentis and in place of the parent. And now they think they are the parent and that they can do whatever they want with your kids and you and and you know school boards and judges are you know in some cases saying yes to that in other cases saying no and i was reading that uh it a bit of news on a friend of mine's blog he said that uh, democrats in virginia's senate voted at virginia voted to kill a bill that would ban schools from hiding a child's gender transition from parents sage's law the bill that passed the old dominion house 
Now, this bill passed their House only 50 to 48 on February 7th, was shot down in their Senate by the Democrat majority. So in other words, yes, the you can't ban schools from hiding the child's gender transition from parents. And we've famously seen what was going on in, in Florida under Governor DeSantis and, and the pushback there against the, uh, oh my goodness, the, the kidnapping of children by state institutions. Yes, and, and you mentioned Virginia, and I think the, the, the governorship was won and lost on, that, on this issue of who do children belong to. And um, exactly. the parents continue to insist that their children belong to them, because they do. In fact, the first chapter of my book is called Belonging, and I outline how it is that children belong to their parents. And just in brief, it's, the child comes out of the woman. That means, who's going to argue that a baby does not belong to its mother? It does. And that is unique in, in all the universe, that kind of relationship. And we kind of take it for granted, but that's the thing that establishes the belonging of children to their parents and parents to their children. That is a reciprocal relationship. And so, um, you know, the, the family existed before the state ever did. And the family will outlast the state. The state depends upon the family for its success. And so it's ironic because the more the, the state seeks to usurp the, fa- the power of the family, because they have to, because the family has this great power that they have to try and get if they're going to be really in charge and make their collectivist ways work. But ultimately, they're, they're cutting off the branch they're sitting on, because without the family and the work of family, society collapses. Are you going to be able to stay for the second half to continue this conversation? Sure. It would be nice. You say yes? I'm sorry, I saw your lips move. Okay, great. Thank you. And uh, so as you were speaking and talking about, you know, the, the special relationship between the mother, I'm thinking of the umbilical cord, which you mentioned in your book as, as a physical attachment. And yet we have, it's, it's almost like we have the abortion movement saying that's just a lump of flesh that you're carrying around. And uh, it's part of the woman's body. So she has a right to terminate it and have it removed because it's a part of the woman's body. And yet under their scenario after birth that said, oh no, it's not a part of the woman's body. There's not this special attachment. We can take it away uh, uh, and, and, and take it to ourselves as the state. Right, and, and it, it is ironic in that the arguments are so inconsistent. And, um, but the thing is, mothers, mothers are placed in the position that they were, I believe, uh, by God. I, in the book, I don't take religious arguments. I, I feel like we need to make the argument for the family on non-religious grounds, which I do in the book, but I personally am religious. And, and it, life makes a lot more sense if you believe that God designed it on purpose, designed human anatomy on purpose, in the form of male and female, who then cooperate together to produce a child. And that a child is produced from man and woman because he, in fact, needs them both. They're both necessary. And the woman has a unique uh, position as the mother, and as does the father. His position is also unique, and we need to value them. There, there, shouldn't, there shouldn't need to be competition between men and women. There needs to be cooperation. It takes a family to raise a child. Exactly. Hey, look, uh, we're coming up on the break, and uh, we have five seconds till the music starts. That means I have 32 seconds to uh, welcome people to come back to the second half of the show. And um, we'll take calls at 734-822-1600 with my guest, Kimberly Ells, who is the author of The Invincible Family, 
why the global campaign to crush motherhood and fatherhood can't win. Come back and join us. We were made to lead the way. We could be the generation that finally breaks the chains. We were made to be courageous. We were made to be courageous. We were warriors on the front lines, standing unafraid. All righty then. Thanks for returning to your American Heritage, baby. Yeah, my audio worked that time. I'm your host, Ed Bondaranka, and our guest today is Kimberly Ellis. And Kimberly Ellis is a researcher in family policy. As I said earlier, she spoke to the United Nations and around the country on international threats to children and the family. She's married, mother of five children, knows a thing or two about family. And she wrote, The Invincible Family, Why the Global Campaign to Crush Motherhood and Fatherhood Can't Win. And she wrote that a couple years ago, and it's just come out in paperback, actually on Valentine's Day. So welcome back to the show, Kimberly. Um, Thank you. You want to continue where you were? Uh, what what you were talking about, uh, we were talking about possession of the children, fatherhood. There was actually a number of topics there. Uh, pick something you want to you want to pursue. Sure. Well, the the primacy of the family it should it is evident, and it's almost indestructible. That's why I call the book the Invincible Family. By that, I don't mean that um, our families won't be influenced by outside sources, or that we'll never have any problems or things like that. The family is invincible in that it's rooted in our very anatomy. It's, man and woman exist, and together they create new life. They create a baby, which creates families, which then perpe- continually perpetuates itself. And so, uh, you know, dynasties rise and fall, co- governments come and go, the borders of nations change. But the thing that always remains is family, is families. And even if, you know, the rest of the world falls apart in whatever manner, the thing that will rise again will be the family and individual families who can then work together uh, in, in whatever ways they wish. But it's the family that is, in a sense, eternal, and, and that's uh, established because of the regenerative nature of our, of our anatomy. It's the fundamental building block of society. And as, as, as God intended, I mean, he made Adam and Eve famously, and then they had kids long before there became city-states, you know, it's it's the building block of society. And so, um, and, and, and as such, you just can't, it's like you can split an atom, but that doesn't mean that, there aren't, that atoms are not the fundamental building block of the elements and, and of matter. It's the same way with the family. You can split a family, but that doesn't mean that the structure isn't the way it's intended to be, regardless of whether people think that, uh, Two men, like say a transportation secretary and his buddy, you know, can be a family and then adopt a couple kids. That's just not the way it works. And, you know, our, our society wants to twist it around so that sure that can work that way. This guy can even identify as a woman or as a mom or whatever. He's still not a woman or a mom. He's a guy. You know, it's just you can't change your DNA. Uh, boy. Uh, become knocking on my door shortly. So, <laughs> right. Well, when we try to um, redefine uh, or shuffle around the 
structure of the family, that's problematic because it, it says, like, if, if we go along with the philosophy that same-sex marriage is just the same uh, or just as valid as other forms of family and marriage, then what we're saying is that either a mother or a father is uh, disposable in the life of a child. Because in, in any same-sex relationship, either a father or a mother is missing. And if that doesn't matter, then then really male and female doesn't matter. Then maybe family doesn't matter. But, but research seems to indicate and data seems to indicate, and most people through common sense see, that men and women actually do matter. Mothers and fathers actually do matter, and that they bring different strengths and different things to the table. And across the board, for the last 50 years, the social science data shows that children who are raised in married mother-father families, their biological parents who stay married, do best on almost every measurable marker. Now, that doesn't mean that kids in other situations are doomed to, uh, to failure. Um, certainly, there's hope for all people, but, but if you want the best outcomes for the most number of children, it, it's the married mother-father family. Exactly. We said we'd take calls at 734-822-1600, and we have a call, Joe from Wyandotte. And, uh, hi, Joe. What do you know? Hello, brother. Good to hear from you, sister. Uh, great job. Uh, I don't have a question per se. What I would like to do is to give a reaction uh, to something what you said to have you react to it. Would that be fair enough, Kimberly? Oh, that's fine. It doesn't have to be questions. It can be comments. We 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 uh, um, enjoy people's insight or mock it, depending yeah. on how well, I feel. I wanna, so go ahead. want to get her reaction to she showed a, a disdain for the term it takes a village, and I fully understand why. I've written articles on it on the Liberty Beacon. I have a piece about the left-twisting language today. And it's like the term for the greater good also. It takes a village used to not be a pejorative term. It used to be Christian-based conservative term. It takes, yes, the family, but sometimes it takes the friends or it takes a neighbor's kid to babysit. So it takes a village is not the problem. The problem is a Hillary Clinton saying it as it takes the state, like you were alluding to. That's where the problem comes in. I, I, I agree with you. I agree with you 100%. Um, you know, another public figure, Melissa Harris-Perry, said something else. She said that kids belong to everyone. Well, do they? I mean, yes, we would l hope that most people would be responsible if they saw a child in need. But ultimately, a child belongs to its parents. Community, as you say, is can be very supportive and helpful and necessary. And yes, I think that that term has been, to some degree, co-opted uh, for the cause of the state. Exactly. It, exactly. It's a question of defining terms, and that's the part of the problem here. The pathetical corruptness is what I call PC, because that's what it is. Marxism attempting to distort and twist language so we don't have a common set of terminology to have a basis of a good and honest debate. They can't win an honest debate. So they have to distort the parameters 
to just get you to try to shake your head and walk away and give up. Well, right. as another Clinton famously said, uh, it depends on what the definition of is, is. How you define the terms is basically how you define the argument. Thanks for calling, Joe. Kimberly? Yes. yes. Your turn. Uh-oh. I am not hearing Kimberly. I'm here. Oh, okay. Go ahead. Can you hear me now? You want to respond to that? Yeah, yeah. I'm sorry. Yeah. Okay, sorry. Yeah, so he's right. It, the definition of ter- terms is is very key, and um, that's a strategy that, that happens a lot at the global level, particularly the United Nations. A lot of terms that uh, could be interpreted in a positive way are interpreted in a very different way, and that's why some of the work that my colleagues have done at the United Nations is so key, because a lot of the documents that are presented there are very anti-family, but the language that's presented... That's, it's not obvious at first, and so we have to guard against the uh, intrusion of language that can be interpreted in nefarious ways at all levels. Well, it takes a, it takes a parent to raise a kid. It takes a village to say, hey, kid, get off my lawn. So, you know, there's that. Right. There's a certain thing what the village does to, to help the parent oversee the child, you know, and, and like Joe was alluding to. Unfortunately, I remember coming home once from playing at my friend's house in my friend's basement and his brother was upstairs with my brother climbing on their brand new car and <laughs> their father's yelling, hey, Bonnerica, get off my car. And when I got home, I was the first one home and I was the one the neighbor said was climbing on the car and I took the hit. So, you know, it takes a village to screw things up with the kids sometimes too. <laughs> but uh, yeah. It doesn't work that way all the time, but yes, exactly. We it takes a village, it takes a community is what it takes. It doesn't take the a structure. It takes the neighbors working in concert. It takes the fellow church members. That's that's where it, it really helps with your kids. It's it's a hard row, and especially if a mother is a single mom. If a mother's a single mom, she needs help, and she she can get that through her local church and her local community of believers and shouldn't have to rely on the state. In fact, actually should not be able to rely on the state. If you recall, a number of years ago, we we had the term latchkey children, and we started having Head Start and the after hours, which was the encrosion. Uh, is that a word? Encrosion? Hmm. I'll get it right later. I'll edit that out. So anyways, it's the encroaching. There you go. It's the encroaching of the state on the children. Well, we'll take them before and we'll take them after class, but you can trust us. What's going on in in class is okay too until we find out. No, it's not. They're hiding secrets from the parents. They're supposed to be an extension of the parents, not the replacement of the parents. But that seems to be what it's become today. Well, and one movement that we need to be aware of, you said, you know, with latchkey kids and after-school uh, activities for children at the school, there's a massive new movement called the Community Schools Movement, and it's focused on what they call the whole school, whole child, whole community model. And what Arne Duncan said, he was in the uh, Obama administration, he said that the schools should become the hearts of family life. And um, that's just that idea is important to me, that the school would be the, the heart of family life. Um, the home should remain the heart of family life. But what the vision is, is that uh, the school should be an, a full-service uh, 
center for the ki- the needs of kids for basically the first two uh, decades of their life. Okay, so that sounds very much like the social, or excuse me, the communist uh, plan. You know, early we have quotations from early communists saying that very thing that what their goal is is to get the mother to relinquish her child to the state, and how they would do that is by providing full service centers. For the children, that's what our schools are becoming, and and in a very major way, that is what the movement going forward is uh, outlined to do. In Biden's recent uh, budget, he allocated over forty million dollars for community schools, and the vision there is that all of the children's um, meals will be provided, all of their counseling. They want to put medical services clinics in schools. By the way, the most medical clinics that are in schools now are run by guess who. Planned Parenthood, so you can guess what direction that kind of care is going to go. And so, um, again, it's just eroding and taking more and more and more of the responsibility of parents and families and giving it to the state through the school. So whenever you hear, even though as nice as it might be packaged, the whole child, whole school, whole community movement, you should be aware of that because it is not what we want. We don't want the state taking responsibility for our children. For our children. We need to retain responsibility for them. It's it's interesting as you're speaking. I'm thinking. Well, most teachers unions want that three months off in the summer. So how do they reconcile that with wanting <laughs> control of the kids? Oh, I remember it's summer. Yeah, free out there fishing and and riding bikes and camping and doing all kinds of stuff. Mom and dad didn't know about because they were at work. Yeah. Right. It, it, we'll see how that goes. But there, unfortunately, there's a lot of. Uh, I still believe that there are good teachers in in our schools. But more and more, we're getting more activist teachers who'd be more than happy to spend their lives indoctrinating the next generation in, in what they believe to be true. But uh, it's parents that, by and large, should be passing on to their children what they believe is true. And then, of course, later the children can decide for themselves. But when they're little, it's a parent's opportunity to do that. And the school should never take a stance that is anti-parent. They shouldn't be hiding things from the parents. This has never been okay before. They shouldn't be sexualizing our children. This is, we've never allowed this before. And uh, suddenly, in these recent years, you know, we, we see even parents defending uh, very pornographic sexual materials being presented in schools. Even the, you know, like you mentioned before, Florida, the, the law that was proposed to keep any uh, teaching about sexuality out of grades K through 3. Most sane people would agree that in, in grades K through 3, Children do not need to be taught sexual topics at school. If parents talk about those things age appropriately at home, they're, they're welcome to do that. But I was surprised, as perhaps many uh, others were, that against to, to see the backlash against that, saying, no, we need sex to be taught in schools in kindergarten through third grade. That's a new development, I think, in the mainstream, to have uh, a vocal, I don't know if it's a majority, but anyway, a vocal uh, presence advocating for teaching sex to kindergartners. This is a change, and it's not a good one. Well, I was in high school by the time I figured it out. You know, I mean, I really didn't have it presented to me. I don't even think mom and dad told me about it, but one of my friends in Boy Scouts told me how it worked. So that was, you know, I mean, there's ways of finding out. Uh, but well, certainly, we can do, I we wasn't think we cheated. Can do better. I think our parents, parents do need to take this by the horns and Talk regularly in age-appropriate ways to our children uh, about sex, gender, marriage, and the family. And and uh, I'm not saying laying it all out when they're little. I think we need to protect their innocence. 
when they're little. That's the job of adults is to protect the innocence of children, not go marching out every, you know, sexual grotesque thing that we can find. We, it is our job to uh, kind of be the gatekeepers of what our children experience. And, and if our schools are taking a stance that is uh, against, openly against that, then uh, we need to find, we need to either reform our schools or find other educational options because it's not acceptable. Yes, recently in this state, we passed by referendum, not by our legislature, but by a poorly informed uh, referendum. Most people didn't know what they were signing up for, and they ended up with a referendum that would uh, allow abortion, unfettered abortion. And they thought they were just reinstating uh, Roe v. Wade, and it went much further than that. And it allows, uh, basically allows anything to be done with reproductive rights for children. Uh, and so gender reassignment, any of that, and the, uh, we don't even know how far it's gonna get carried away yet. And it's an unintended reaction to something that we've been hoping for in the Supreme Court for uh, 30 years, 40 years. And uh, now an uninformed electorate has chosen to give uh, teachers basically the right to do whatever they want, to promote whatever they want in schools. We're not sure where it's going, but I understand this This happened in a number of other uh, states also. I'd, I'd like to ask you, where do you stand on the certification of marriage by the state? Since basically they decided, seemed to decide that a man could marry a man or a woman could marry a woman. Uh, there's many people argue that the state shouldn't be involved in marriage certification at all. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I do have an opinion on this. And, and uh, you know, when marriage was redefined, you know, in 2015, a lot of people said, well, the solution is just get the state out of it. And I have a very good libertarian friend uh, who advocates for that position to not have marriages um, ratified by the state. I don't believe that's a good idea because ultimately for the protection of children, see, marriage, when you show up to be married and you're registering it with the state in ink, there's a certain social um, expectation that goes with that. And so that is one instance where I believe the state has a function that is useful because then we're able to legally link children to their parents. And therefore, it legally makes children, excuse me, parents responsible for their children. And in the very rare cases where children need to be protected from their parents, um, it also gives the state some power in that regard. And so I think God instituted marriage, and uh, marriage often takes place in churches and whatever, but I think it's very useful, um, for the, mostly for the protection of children, to have marriages registered with the state. I think that's absolutely true, and, and I've also thought of along the lines of protecting children's inheritance rights, so that basically you're tracking who is the father, who is responsible, who is going to be held responsible for the behavior of that child, but also when it comes mm-hmm. to a transfer of finances from the parents, who's it go to? You know, it's, it's, it, it just brings about an orderly society, but I can see the point of why, I mean, there was a time, particularly even in this country, where people were married because they said they were married. They had a, you know, mm-hmm. they, they got married, the certificate was in a church and there wasn't even a place to have it registered with the state. And there's our libertarian friends. So we have a caller 
Uh, Mike from Ann Arbor, he has a phone. Uh, he's on the phone with a question. And uh, Mike, welcome to the show. Yeah, I want to know if uh, your guest thinks that Kamala Harris, the vice president of the United States, is a good, fantastic, or great role model for our young females in the country? Well, I, I'm, it doesn't bother me that we have a female as the vice president of the United States. I'm not a fan of Kamala Harris's record or her policies or her statements. And so, um, well, some, some girls might see, oh, that's wonderful. There's a woman as the, in a high-ranking position, which is perfectly fine and wonderful. Her particular stance, though, I think is, is non-admirable. Is that it, Mike? No, I have another question. Okay. Do you, do you think the, the vice presidency of the United States will always be a minority from here on out? I don't know. I think that's likely because oftentimes, you know, when a, when a presidential candidate is running, they will choose a running mate. Unfortunately, our society recently has become very racist. And so, um, you know, people think about race as being one of the top priorities rather, rather than qualification. So I think that's likely for those reasons. I, I think people of any race should, should fill the highest uh, positions in our society. But that's not based on their race, however, based on their uh, performance and their ability and their principles. All right. Thanks for calling, Mike. I appreciate that. So uh, we've got a couple minutes left, and I just wanted to explore this, uh, how children belong to their fathers. So why don't you expand on that for a little bit? Right. This is one reason why marriage is important. And, you know, I, most of the time I'm fighting against the power of the state, but there are some instances. That's why we've created the state, because we need it in some instances to protect our rights and to uh, facilitate a uh, more peaceful society and cooperative society. So a, a woman, when a, when a baby is born, the, the baby inherently belongs to her because it's totally obvious. It's not obvious who the father is So um, because he's not connected to the child. So that makes a unique position for the woman. And so the way that a man has traditionally claimed his own children is through marriage to his wife. That's one of the main purposes of marriage is so that a man can claim his children. Because when two people get married, they're most often pledging that they are going to have sexual relations only with each other. And so um, in most cases, it should be in every case, if a woman has a baby and she's married to a certain man, the man we can expect and hope is the father of those children, which then gives him responsibility to care for them and also the opportunity to claim them as his own. And it's through that covenant of marriage and that vow of sexual exclusivity and the legal binding of the marriage that allows a man to claim which children are his. And interestingly enough, um, Frederick Ingalls in his writings, he, he, he basically said that it would be better if men never knew uh, who their children were, that, that children should just be randomly produced. Again, this collectivist mindset, which has never worked and will never work because of the structure of the family itself, which is the reason why it's primary, which is the reason why my book is called The Invincible Family. Exactly. Thank you. As the father of three sons, 
one my natural born, one my adopted, and one my step. I'm proud of all three of them, and I take ownership of them. Folks, my guest has been uh, Kimberly Ells. She wrote The Invisible Invincible Family. You can buy it. It's in paperback. You should. It's great. And so uh, thanks for joining us, Kimberly. Folks, you've been listening to Your American Heritage. We'll be back next week. Please join us. God bless America, and America bless God.